Hey everybody, this is Jim from faithtestedbyfire.com, and you are listening to the Faith Tested by Fire podcast. Hey everyone, this is Jim. Great to be here together with you again today. I'm making this recording on Saturday, February the 25th, so I'm not sure when you'll be listening to this, when I'll upload it. Occasionally what I'll do is I will upload some of the ums and the long pauses out of the audio, but basically that's about it. So this weekend I was thinking about making this recording because I was talking to people during the week about the time that we're living in. And when you really think about it, Jesus said that the days of his return would be similar to the days of Noah. And Noah's story began in Genesis chapter 6, and it took approximately 1,600 years from the creation of Adam and Eve until the days of Noah. And the population of the earth exploded in such a way that in a negative way, that there was evil everywhere. And the days of Abel making his righteous sacrifice were in the distant past at that point. And it says in Genesis 4-4 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And it says in verses 11 and 12 that the earth was corrupt in God's sight filled with violence, and the Lord saw that, behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh was corrupt in their way on the earth. However, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, think about that description and think about where we are today. Now, if you were alive in the 60s or the 70s or even before then, you know that there has always been corruption on the earth. But as we fast forward through the decades, through the 80s, through the 90s, through the early 2000s and uh, 2010s, now we see where we are today, that the corruption has intensified over time. It hasn't diminished. It's got even more so. Matter of fact, it reminds me of the scripture that talks about the time of the harvest, where the wheat and the tares grow up together. And every time I read those scripture verses, I think to myself, what does growing up mean? Growing up means to become enlarged, to become established. One of the things that is included in that is not just the tares, not just the maturing of evil, but the maturing of good. And I can honestly say that in my own experiences with walking by faith and walking in the spirit and everything that I've learned about the Bible since I began doing ministry work myself back in the 1980s, that the version of me that exists today in 2023 is much more mature than the version that existed previously. And I'm sure that if you look at your own life, you would come to the same conclusion because the person that begins the work in you back in the earlier times is the same one, I'm talking about Jesus, who will complete the work that was started in you. Philippians 1.6 puts it this way, being confident of this very thing, this is the New King James Version, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So when I read this, I have that extra assurance that the one that started all of this in me, the one that started it in you, will complete it. And if you're still here, that work is still ongoing. 
Now I know we can look at these things from different angles and say, well, what if your focus isn't on the things of God or if you're caught up in other types of pursuits or your heart grows cold and we can look at all of those things but i think at the end of the day the one constant that remains is that jesus is faithful god the father is faithful sometimes people ask the question should i be focusing more on jesus or should i be focusing on god the father and i think i understand the questioning i mean i've had that question myself from time to time and most of the time that question seems to arise if you're struggling in a situation and you're praying and your prayers appear to be going unanswered and you're wondering, should I be using the name of Jesus? Should I be asking God the Father for help in Jesus' name? Is there a special combination of things that I should be using? Well, let me just bring you back to John's Gospel, chapter 14. We'll take a look at some of the statements that Jesus made around this issue. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. So the relationship between you and I and God, our Father, that was the goal. That was the objective. Jesus came to bring us back to his Father. But in verse 7, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Very interesting statement right there. We could talk about that for a half hour if we wanted to, but I'm going to keep on going. Verse number eight, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Now listen closely to this answer. Jesus said to him in verse nine, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? It's interesting, I've seen this played out in movie form, these verses. I believe, I'm trying to think of the name of the movie that was talking about the, I believe it was the Gospel of John that was recorded back in the 90s, filmed back in the 90s. And the look on Philip's face when Jesus replies to him in verse number nine is just just priceless. He really didn't know what to do with that. And it's sort of like how we feel sometimes if you look at a verse like this. Verse number 10, Jesus goes on and he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. So oftentimes, and I believe that unfortunately, some of the biggest religious institutions have a lot to do with this over the centuries, hundreds of years, But people see God as an older man, very stern, sitting in the seat of judgment. And then when we try to portray him in the light of a loving, caring father, there's a bit of a disconnect there. But one of the things that I go back to is the fact that if you think of a person that you've had a close relationship with, hopefully you had a father that you had a good relationship with. It does, I believe it does make a difference. It does help in a way because it gives you something that's here on earth that you've actually experienced that maybe you can relate to. Maybe you had a bad relationship with your father, you had a better with a, mo- with a mother, or maybe you there was somebody else in your life that you really looked up to and that you had a loving relationship with. And when you understand what that relationship is like, that personal interaction that occurs, that love that's there, you would also understand that if that individual was in the position of a judge, let's say on a state or federal level, and you committed a crime 
and that person was forced, let's say, to preside over your case, then they would have to relate to you on a legal level, even though deep down in their heart they didn't want to. And it's like that with God the Father. If you read these verses very closely, God does not want to be your judge, your jury, and your convictor. The Bible says that mercy triumphs over judgment. So if you're a parent, you already know this from firsthand experience. If you're not, maybe you have to think about it a little bit. But if your child does something wrong and they face punishment, and let's say, I mean, let's face it, if you're a teenager or in your early 20s, you don't have the wisdom, the life experience that you'll have when you're older and you do some stupid things. And when you do some stupid things, sometimes you put yourself in a position where you could potentially pay for that decision for the rest of your life. Now, as a parent, you want to give that child mercy. And it's no different with God the Father. The reason why Jesus came is so that he could pay the penalty, much like if your child were facing some type of judgment and they were being dealt with based on legalities. And you found a way to be able to pay, whether you had to sacrifice something that was truly great, uh, something that was close to you to make this happen. I guess that would be the best way to put it. But the bottom line is the rest of that child's life would not be ruined based on what they did. And we can look at that as sort of an example of in the heavenly world. In the heavenly world, unrighteousness must be punished. It must be paid for. But we have one who already took that punishment on our behalves. And so we don't have to think about sin as being this insurmountable issue anymore as far as our relationship with God the Father goes. We can know God as a loving father instead of a strict judge because of what Jesus did, because of who he is. And recognize the fact that when the woman in the Bible was caught in the midst of adultery and Jesus said to the people that were ready to stone her, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. And the people dropped their stones from the oldest, starting with the oldest, and walked off until there was no one left but that woman in Jesus. What did Jesus say here? He said that, do you not believe in verse 10 that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. So that was the Father talking through Jesus, you could say, who said to that woman, woman, where are your accusers? And they had all left, and he said, neither will I accuse you, then go your way and sin no more. Now, some people, of course, if you're extra legalistic, you may say, well, the forgiveness was predicated on sinning no more. But, you know, if you're in a human body, you know that, yes, you can grow to the point where you're beginning to overcome maybe some sins that were easier for you to do. I know for myself, again, it's interesting the things that you learn as time goes on, but material things do not have the same appeal that they once did. In other words, that old saying about keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with your neighbors. If they have new cars, you should have a new car. If they have a swimming pool in their backyard, you know, none of those things, at least I can say for the people that I know, have the kind of appeal that they once did. You could only wear or I was thinking about clothing and people that have closets you see on TV that 
or on YouTube, I should say, and watch TV anymore. But these people have closets that are bigger than some people's houses. Some of these mansions saw one closet that had two two floors, two story closet. Can you believe that? And I thought to myself, well, you know, you can only wear one shirt at a time, all things being equal, one pair of shoes at a time. I understand why people go overboard and do the things that they do. But still, there is a time when those things I'm sure have appeal. But after a while, those things lose their appeal. All right. I don't want to really focus on that too much. Let's keep on going a little bit further. Once you realize that God is a loving father and you recognize that Jesus and the father have the same personality, they are givers they are the definition of love and kindness and mercy and all of these things, then you can understand why there's such a stark difference in how God interacted with people in times of old until the New Testament. We have a New Testament that's established upon better promises, but still there is a time coming when this entire story will come to an end, when there will be a day of judgment. We see that in the book of Revelation. And when we experience what we're what we're experiencing today, more people are beginning to recognize that we are in truly a time in our lifetime like none other. And so when I go back to these scriptures in the book of Genesis and think about what was it like in the days of Noah, and it's a great place to start because it's one of the signs that Jesus talked about when he was talking about the day that he would return, when God's final judgment would happen. And it says that, you know, people in Noah's day were totally depraved. They weren't concerned about sin or anything like that. They were just carrying on with their lives without a single thought about judgment. And Peter says it this way, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. It says that in Second Peter verses, or verse 2-5. And so he spent years warning his friends, his neighbors, about what was coming. But the depravity and the ungodly lifestyles, we see it on TV and in movies more than ever before, caused God to regret, it says, that he had made man, Genesis 6-6. And a lot of scholars believe that part of the need to destroy mankind, except for Noah and his family, was the sin mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1-4, through 4, when it says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and bore children unto them. And as evil reproduced and took over the world, God, it was almost an act of mercy to save the human race that God performed a reset. And so it's interesting when you think about the fact that Noah preached for nearly a hundred years while he was in the process of building this ark. And throughout all of that time, it says that God patiently waited. First Peter chapter 3, verse 20. You can check that out for yourself. And the scripture seems to imply that Noah preached to the people of that time about what was coming, but they just did not believe. Now, is that something similar to what we're seeing today? And do the statistics by the people that do that kind of thing, do they point out the fact that the direction that we're going in is a lot like the direction that they were in at that time? I think, yes, absolutely. People's hearts were hard. Their ears were dull to hear. No one repented and no one cared to seek God. 
And what, you know, one of the things that you'll learn if you haven't already is that the rules, so to speak, as harsh as they may seem to certain people, they were designed because the designer of us knew exactly what it would take, what we could do and what we couldn't do to get the most out of life, to get the most out of our relationships, to get the most out of our experience here. There is no peace when you do evil. There is no peace when you're involved in unrighteousness. When you're doing things that are completely self-centered, a lot of times people do what they do because they think to themselves, well, if I don't do it this way, then I'm not going to be able to achieve certain things. I'm not going to be able to enjoy certain experiences. And so the world begins to revolve more and more around them. But unfortunately, the more you revolve around just your immediate self, then the less satisfaction you experience with your total life experience, the more things begin to seem hollow, the more things begin to feel unfulfilling. And we see that happen in a lot with wealthy people. I remember hearing years ago that the highest suicide rates were not among the poor, but they were among the wealthy. But Jesus talked about his return. He talked about his day, his hour, and that he was coming in an hour that we wouldn't expect him. But he did give signs and clues. He dropped them, and we're seeing more of them. Now, it would be a one thing if you're following breadcrumbs in the woods trying to get from point A to point B, right? Little signposts. It would be one thing if there was a signpost like every hundred yards but it's a lot different when you see signs every other step. You see another breadcrumb there. That's what it's like in the time I believe that we're living in. And think about what Paul said it would be like. He gave more examples of this, a clear picture of the state of the world, what it would be like, and likening it to the days of Noah. It says there will be terrible times. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I'm not even sure which version this is. I just pulled it up on my screen says, but there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Do we see that happening today? Absolutely. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutals, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of of God. So it's become increasingly obvious that we are deeper into this period of time that we know as the end times than we were in the past. Again, we can look at different times throughout history and we can see examples of when depravity became the norm. Even in modern history, there were certain time periods where we could see Europe is a great example of it when things like this happen, UK, France, places like that. But as we fast forward to where we are now, I really believe that this is a unique time that we're living in. And that's why I believe it's more important also to realize that it's not just the tares that are developing in their maturity, but it's also the wheat. It's also you and I. I believe that the access that we have to the power of God, that the spiritual development that you and I will experience today will be greater than that of any other time in recorded history. I'm seeing it already. I've experienced it in my own life, and it's it, it's beginning to increase. So I'm thinking to myself that, 
You know, on one side, when we turn on the news or look at the news online, you're not going to hear the media talking about what God is doing in the world today. And so it appears, if you just listen to the news, that he's not doing much. Or maybe if you're just aware of what's happening in a local church or in a local ministry and you measure what God is doing in the world today, maybe you're a little disappointed by that. But I can tell you from what I've seen, from the people that I'm connected to, let me give you a quick example here. A friend of mine had glasses from as long as he could remember. I think he had glasses from the time he was about five years old. He had vision problems all of his life. And he was working in his wood shop and he and uh, he hit a nail and it came out of, he was nailing something in and got distracted and hit the nail on, a, on an angle that popped up out of the wood and hit him directly in his eye, in his left eye. And he didn't put the uh, safety goggles on or anything like that. And, you know, I could really relate to him because we have a wood shop, even though I know almost nothing about working with wood. But Lori has a wood shop in the garage and she likes to build things and fix things. And she's really good with wood. But I, I've even told her before, make sure you put on those goggles. Even she's experienced firsthand what it's like to have a sliver of wood when you're cutting something with a circular saw just pop up and, and hit you in the eye. Not fun, but um, anyway, he had the nail go back and hit him in the eye, and his wife took him to the doctor, and he had bleeding in the retina, and he was blind in that eye. Now, let me just add here, because I think it's important, he had already received healing from cancer several years earlier, so we already had faith in God's power but I just pulled up a letter that we were writing back and forth talking about this, and I decided to save our correspondence because it was just so encouraging. But um, let me just pull this up and read this to you. What, what I've learned is, this is him speaking, my friend Jerry. He said, what I've learned is that healing can come gradually as our faith in God's word grows, or it can become, it can come suddenly when we settle God's word in our heart and we make the decision to never look back. I've had it both ways in my own body with instant healings and gradual healings. And I can't give any valid reason why it took so long for me to recover from the cancer because I believed according to Psalm 103, 3, verses 2 and 3, and I settled it in my heart. For those of you who don't know that Psalm 103, 3, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. He forgives all our iniquities and heals all our diseases. Let me fast forward here to the place where he was talking about his eye. He said, okay, after my accident with my eye, put my right eye out. I was blind in the eye in August, and I was blind in that eye for 30 days, but I had steadfastly settled in my heart that I would not only see again, but would see perfectly in both eyes without glasses. I thought, why believe God for 2250 vision that I had before when God could just as easily give me 2020 vision? And on the 30th day, he instantly healed both of my eyes, and my vision has been perfect ever since. No more glasses. So is patience part of the formula? I can't say. Uh, God does as God wants, and we have little influence on his actions or decisions. However, God honors faith. Now, uh, this is just, I can go on because we've had quite a few correspondences. Maybe I'll have to publish them one day, but 
you know, I read that. I'd already experienced healing for myself in my own life. But when you read about other people's experiences, especially people that you know, your contemporaries, it's even more exciting than that. Now, you know that when you go back in the Bible, and this is one of the things I want to add before I wrap up today. I'm going to make this a little bit shorter. Sometimes I sit down and I really want to talk for an hour or even longer. And just the realization that it's going to take that much time keeps you from sitting down and talking at all. So I make this a little bit briefer today, but I, I do want it to, and I pray that it encourages you. But um, the, the, the focus here, which I see clearer today than I ever did before, is that people who receive focus on Jesus. When you're focusing on Jesus, you're also seeing, according to Jesus's own words, the Father. So if you're wrestling with, should I be focusing on Jesus, focusing on the Father? The Father gave us Jesus for, among other reasons, so we could see him. It's not a matter of, you know, does the person have a mustache or no mustache? Do they have gray hair, white hair, red hair, or another color that's not even, you know, available to us on the earth plane? So it's not a matter of any of that. It's a matter of the person. You know, we judge people a lot by what we see, what types of clothes they wear and if they're tall or short, if they're heavy or skinny. And and we put a lot on that. And when we look at Jesus, we see Jesus, the man, there was nothing visibly striking about him. It says that in the Old Testament. There was one thing that it did point out, and that was his eyes. And that's understandable because the eyes are the mirror of the soul. And so you know that if you looked into the eyes of Jesus, you would see the soul of God. So obviously there was something about his eyes that would stand out. But Jesus appeared in other forms to the disciples after the resurrection when he walked on the road with them. And so the form is really not important as it is the person, right? I mean, you could go out with uh, your friends and family. Everybody could wear masks and dress up in, in, in costume, but they're still them. Once you communicate with them, it doesn't make any difference whether they're wearing a mask or not because you know them. And it's the same way with our relationship with God. God gave us Jesus. He gave us the blood. He gave us the name. He gave us all of those things. Jesus came so that we could be reconnected with the Father. Jesus himself said that the Father is greater than I, right? The Father sits on the throne. Jesus sits at the right hand. We have the Holy Spirit. So we have all of these things already. Not going to have them. We have them, right? Jesus said that if any man love me, then my father and I will come and make our home with him. So we think of God sometimes as being far away in heaven. No, God is as close to our spirit as our spirit is to our soul. So God's already here, not just in a faraway place that we call heaven, sitting on a throne. He's here with us. Whether we can see him, feel him, touch him, that's a totally different story. But the reality is he's here. So Hebrews 12, 2 says, uh, Fix our eyes on Jesus or consider Jesus, some other translations say, the author and perfecter of our faith. Faith is not just something that you have because you read a Bible scripture and you intellectually say, okay, I understand this. I choose to believe it. I'm going to say it over and over again. And by meaning, by means of repetition, I'm going to work up faith on the inside. There's nothing wrong with repeating scriptures. 
Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue. But at the end of the day, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Without me, you can't do anything. And so if you want stronger faith, look to the source of your faith, which according to the Bible is Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. If you're struggling with something in prayer, it's obvious that you need the creator of your faith, the author and finisher of your faith, to be able to tweak what you can't mentally, intellectually do on your own. I hope that makes sense, right? So we're connected with him. We've been given a measure of faith. What if that measure is not enough, somebody says, to be able to pray through this situation, to be able to receive healing for my eyes, if I have problems with my eyes, or for another part of my body, or to get out of this situation where we're struggling to make our home payments, or any other tribulation that you may be facing in life. It says, let me read this, uh, the, all the verses, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily ensnare us and run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. There's a lot of weariness out there today. There's a lot of discouragement out there today. And if there's a formula for getting through all of that discouragement and weariness, it's looking to Jesus. Not just the words that he said, but the fact that he is the person or the individual who said it. Now, if you still struggle with coming to grips of who God the Father is, you can reread the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and instead of Jesus being there, just picture the Father being there. Because Jesus already said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because he's the one that gave me the words, he gave me the authority, and he was in me doing the works, reconciling the world to himself. Remember, there's only one Jesus, the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He never changes. Unfortunately, we've watered down the promises of God through religious teaching, even in churches that believe in miracles, the power of God, healing. These truths have been watered down so much and we formalized them so much that we put the pressure on ourselves to be able to pray just right, to be able to believe just right, to be able to do all of the right things in order to receive whatever it is that we have need of from God. And if we don't, then somebody will always tell us, well, we need to start doing more of this and less of that. And the next thing you know, you're right back under the law again. And remember, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The grace is a free gift. The faith is a free gift, right? Now, remember Mark chapter six, one of the warnings here, it says that Jesus went out into his own country and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many hearing him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him? And such mighty works are performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not all his sisters here with us? And so they were offended at him. Verse 5 says, Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And then he went about in the villages in a circuit teaching. So teaching was the antidote, the truth, 
Speaking truth was the antidote to unbelief. And we have so much unbelief today. And if somebody said, well, how do you get past unbelief? What if you're struggling with it yourself? And I would say that every single one of us, regardless of how long we've been believers and how far we are spiritually developed along, that we all still have to wrestle with unbelief from time to time. Jesus's disciples who lived with him and traveled with him for three and a half years or ever how technically long it was, they also had to wrestle with unbelief. So it's ridiculous to think that the people that saw him and saw the miracles firsthand but still had unbelief that we today would be easily free of it because of, for whatever reason, all the books and the tapes and the CDs and the downloads files that we have. But it's still true. One of my favorite examples of it is in Mark chapter 9 where the father who had the son who had the epileptic fits cried out to Jesus for help because the disciples couldn't heal his son. And the disciples came to Jesus afterward and said, why couldn't we heal him? And he said, what? Because of your unbelief. If you read the story again, I'm going to read it to you in closing quickly, because I really think it illustrates this uh, last point that I wanted to make perfectly. It says, okay, teacher, I brought, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit, which makes him unable to speak. This is the Amplified Bible. And whenever it seizes him, intending to do him harm, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes stiff. I told your disciples to drive it out and they couldn't do it. Now listen to what Jesus said. He replied, O unbelieving, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Isn't this interesting here that Jesus didn't reply when they couldn't get results praying for the sick. He did not reply with words of comfort, and he did not make excuses for their unbelief. It says, and then they brought the boy to him, and when the demonic spirit saw him, immediately it threw the boy into a convulsion, and falling down on the ground, it began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he answered, since childhood, the demon has often thrown him into the fire, and into water and intending to kill him. The demon often has often thrown him into the fire and into the water intending to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Well, I understand why he would say this. Because you just brought your son to these disciples that were healing other people. Other people were getting miracles, but he didn't. And Jesus said to me, you say to me, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes and trusts. And then in brackets, it says, in me. So Jesus actually turned it around. That would be like coming to God and saying, God, if, if you can do anything, please help me. If you can make this arthritis leave my body, please heal me. If you can, if you can. And the, the, the right question was not if you can. Jesus turned it around and said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And now if there's a formula... If you really want to formalize it, it's what comes next. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out with a desperate, piercing cry, saying, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was gathering around them, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said unto it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you to come out of him 
and never enter him again. And screaming out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, it came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse, so still and pale, that many of the spectators said, He's dead! But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he stood up. So now, the interesting thing here is that Jesus succeeded where the disciples failed. And if there's a lesson to be learned here, it is that when your faith has gone as far as it can go, when you're struggling with unbelief, where do you focus your attention? Do you focus it on the boy with the epilepsy? No. Do you you focus it on another disciple or another ministry? No. You turn it all back to Jesus. And when you're looking with Jesus with both eyes, not looking to Jesus and then back to the situation, looking to Jesus, when you focus on Jesus, not only are you going to see Jesus, but you're going to see the Father. When you focus on the author and perfecter of your faith, then he, by extension, will be able to open your heart, take anything out that doesn't belong there, put whatever in there needs to be there, make the adjustments. He is the author and perfecter. He is the author and finisher of your faith, which means you can receive any kind of miracle God is capable of giving. You can receive any kind of healing miracle that God is able to give you. You can receive any kind of financial miracle that God is capable of of creating. You can receive anything because you have Jesus living on the inside of you, creating and perfecting your faith. But it's not going to happen if you look to other sources, even people, even well-meaning people. It's not going to happen if you just rely on someone else's training. The idea of, of Bible teaching, of Bible training, if you will, training for ministry, is so that you learn how to take your eyes off of your own ability, your own understanding, everything that you've learned, and begin to put your focus on Jesus. And that transference happens at that point. You may be at the end of what you're capable of doing in your own power, but Jesus is just at his beginning. Not only can he do it, he wants to do it for you. Why do you think the Bible says, ask and it shall be given to you? It doesn't say ask and it might. Why do you think the Bible says that seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open? Because it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, it says. Right now, if that's not your experience, it's because you've been placing your faith in other things other than the author and finisher of your faith. There's the truth and there's the one who speaks the truth. Both of those things are inseparable the way the heads and tails of a coin are inseparable. Right? Both things are true. You have the written word, you have the living word. All right, I'm going to put, you know, I could just keep on going, but I'm going to stop there. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you got something out of it. I hope you feel some inspiration on the inside. And I hope that you will take what I've encouraged you to do and begin to practice it immediately in your own life. It will make a transformation. I know I've lived through it. I'm doing it myself right now. I've discovered in my own life that there are times when I put too much emphasis on my past experiences And what I've seen and experienced and what I see other people doing, too much emphasis on maybe even what other people think about a situation. And instead, taking my eyes off of all of those things, focusing it on Jesus, he's going to be my source 100%, and he's going to be my inspiration 100%. All right, I think that's about all for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you think it will help a friend or family member, please go ahead and share the episode link with them. Or you can send them to www.faithtestedbyfire.com. That's faithtestedbyfire.com. All the back episodes are available there as well. 
your sharing of this podcast does enable me to reach people I'd probably otherwise be very unlikely to reach and possibly shine some light into their lives in some of the darker places. So thanks again for sharing. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your day. God bless. And I'll talk to you soon.